Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we'll be talking about technology and innovation, the perfect storm of forces that are disrupting businesses in all verticals today, the opportunities available for companies that can figure out how to harness these technologies, and what it's like to go to work every day at a company that has been named the most innovative company in the world by Forbes for three years in a row. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Shubber Ali, Vice President of Strategic Innovation at Salesforce. Shubber has been at Salesforce since 2012, working with some of the world's largest companies to solve their most challenging problems by rethinking them through the lenses of mobility, collaboration, speed, simplicity, and customer experience. For nearly five years before that, Shubber was global lead of social enterprise innovation at Accenture. He is also an adjunct professor in innovation management at Georgetown University's Executive MBA program. Welcome to the podcast, Shubber. Thanks, well, glad to be here. So, Shubber, as I mentioned in the intro, we want to focus on the tie between innovation and technology in this episode. And while we could, while we could certainly wrap a show around consumer technology, we're more talking about the combination of four technologies, cloud, social, mobile, and big data, that Gartner refers to as, quote-unquote, the nexus of forces. So what are some of the ways that you're seeing this nexus of forces up in traditional business or commerce as we know it? That's a, that's a great question. It's a great way to launch into it. You know, I, I should probably preface by starting that, you know, from my perspective, technology is an amazing thing. And today you can do so many cool things with technology. We can do almost anything short of warp drive. And I know I'm kind of oversimplifying it, but you know, if you think about what's happening in the world out there, whether it's 3D printing or growing organs or a whole range of different things, it's really up to the imagination as to what you want to do. And that's at the heart of this, which is that it's really rethinking what do you want to get done. Examples of where that starts to manifest in the business world and where you're seeing the, the disruption that you're referring to that's upending traditional business models, uh, an obvious one to many people now is in the travel transportation space, whether it's how people are booking a car a la Uber versus the traditional taxi model um, in many cities or Airbnb, which I think I mentioned um, at the summit a few months ago when I was in New York, the, they have more rooms in New York than any hotel chain. And based on their le- uh, latest round of investment, I believe they actually have a larger valuation than Hyatt Corporation, and yet they own no property. And the reason is because what they're doing is that they're eliminating that friction of information between people who have something, in this case an asset or a mode of transport, and people who want that thing and allow them to connect. And they're doing it through the use of things like uh, mobility, cloud, social, of course, and then behind that, big data analytics to continually streamline and improve on the process. Right. And, and you mentioned the valuation of Airbnb. Uber also had, a, I think it was a $17 billion valuation that came out last week, uh, a $1.2 billion exactly. investment round. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. we're, we're seeing companies that didn't, frankly, didn't exist, you know, five, 10 years ago that have created giant amounts of value, uh, not just for themselves, but also for consumers. Indeed. And in fact, there's, there's, you know, in the last few years, the whole as a service kind of moniker has come out where it's whether it's platform as a service, software as a service, infrastructure as a service. This model has actually been around for a while. What's happened is that new technology has made it easier for more people to get into that game. So whether it's cars as a service, which is effectively what Uber is, uh, or hotel room as a service, 
that's no different than you know 20 years ago or 30 years ago when the big engine manufacturers for aircraft figured out how to sell power as a service instead of selling the engine themselves by charging airlines for the power that came from the engine when the engines were operational. So it's not that the model itself is new, it's that these technologies, this nexus of forces, so to speak, has become a giant democratizer in the world of who can have access to it and who can unlock their their, uh, resources in a way that creates value. Sure. Okay. Got it. So let me ask you about the social component of the nexus of forces for a second, uh, because I think that's probably the most vaguely defined of these four forces. When a lot of people, myself included, hear the word social, I imagine what they think of as social networking sites like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, any other assortment of social, social media sites. Is that the wrong perception or definition of social based on the context? It, it, it is. Uh, it's, it's a kind of a, a simplifier that people use as shorthand early on, but it, it dramatically underestimates what's actually happening. So the growth of social networking and consumer technologies has made it more, again, more ubiquitous out there for people but the opportunity to use it in a business setting or in a, in a corporate uh, context is is tremendous. And yet, it, again, it goes back to, you know, this is, you know, the same song repeating again. In the old days, when companies were small enough, what you would do is collaborate with people by running into them at the water cooler or in a, you know, in a whiteboard in, in a room. And what social has allowed in companies that are taking advantage of it is the ability for people to connect again in a way that they can't because they are either physically separated or they are organizationally separated, and yet they should be connected. It's, you know, when Steve Jobs was designing the buildings, I believe it was for uh, Pixar and then Apple headquarters, uh, he actually forced interactions around the restrooms and he caused people to randomly collide into each other in order to create those moments of, of conversation that create innovation that you can't have when people are sitting in their cubicles. Mm-hmm. What social, when, when done correctly in corporations, does is it's not about Facebooking and chatting and all that. It's actually about allowing people who need to connect, uh, connect with those people that they may not even realize they should be talking to and should have an interest in what they're talking about, whether it's working, you know, when I was at Accenture, connecting myself with somebody in Singapore or Hyderabad or in Brussels around a topic like 3D printing who I would not even know exist or that they had an interest in it because it's not in their job description, but it's something they had a personal interest and passion around. That's what social can do. Sure. So it's as much communication as anything. It's communication and it's creating visibility and transparency around common areas of interest, Mm -hmm. much like Facebook does in the, in the consumer setting. But what's really interesting is that because people, you have over a billion users of these uh, technology like Facebook in the consumer world, people have become more used to that method now of digital sharing, which means there's an opportunity now for corporations to embrace it and take advantage of it where five years ago it was called a collaboration tool and maybe 1% of the people who were given the tool actually used it in the company and the rest of the people ignored it. Sure. Okay. So that segues nicely into the next question, which is uh, kind of about your role at Salesforce. So at Salesforce, you help companies rethink their strategy through the lens of mobility, collaboration, speed, simplicity, and customer experience. So for listeners out there that may be at companies where biting off just one of these or just one of those at a time seems like a serious undertaking, how can they go about breaking it down into digestible chunks? Yeah, that's a great question. And the first thing I do is say, you know, not everything has to be a capital T transformation project. You can take 
any function in any business, not just consumer facing, but any part of the business and rethink it. And I'll get a little bit on my academic soapbox here for a second, because this is, I believe, at the heart of, of what's, what the opportunity is. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the modern corporation, modern organization, this, whether it's public sector or private sector, doesn't matter. This, this principle still holds for what we're talking about. Modern corporations uh, and organizations came into being really in the last 100 or 200 years. And for the majority of that life, as they grew up from one person selling over a counter to a customer where they had immediate feedback and visibility and could know their customer because they saw them every day, as they grew into bigger and bigger organizations, they lost that connection first with their customer and they had to start creating things like customer service departments and marketing and sales, which tried to guess at what the customer wanted and better sell to them. And then internal organizations that had to be created to support the external organizations. So things like finance, accounting, HR, logistics, infrastructure, whatever those are, you know, corporate real estate. As they grew bigger and bigger, these organizations became, you know, multiple lines of businesses and then global corporations that are incredibly disconnected and hierarchical. About 30 or so years ago, you started to see the rise of the consultants, and I was one of them. These people who would come out and do, whether it was initially total quality management or business process reengineering or Six Sigma, or then finally Lean Six Sigma in the last decade. And the company that I was part of that was bought by Accenture, the George Group, was you know, the leader in Lean Six Sigma, and I had my black belt. What all that was done was around trying to take inefficiency out of those processes that had been built up over decades or a century or more. And it was really good at doing just that. It was good at streamlining. What it wasn't good at doing was imagining um, how you should rethink these processes. And what I mean by that is in the last five years, really since the first iPhone came out and apps became much more common and you had the ability to do things like big data analytics and Google and Amazon and others brought to the, the forefront massively scalable infrastructure and incredible analytics and all the things that happen with mobility and collaboration and speed and simplicity so that you could just, you know, like with Siri, just push a button, ask a question and get an answer without having to open a browser, do a search. Those kinds of changes fundamentally have not been incorporated into the processes of business and organizations. And so there's a, there's a, there's a great chance right now in every single business process in every single organization is open for innovation and reinvention. That's the opportunity that's in front of us, which is you can rethink everything and say, how do I do what I'm doing right now? Not just a little more efficiently, but how do I make it one step? How do I take all of these steps out of the process? How do I create transparency where transparency didn't exist before? So if I'm a bank and I'm taking uh, mortgage applications from customers, instead of them sending documents into some central repository where the mortgage loan officer at the local branch that I'm working with doesn't even know what's been received or not, and I have to ask the customer three times for their you know, pay stub or what have you, which is not a great customer experience. Mm-hmm. How do I instead create something more like a Domino's pizza tracker that allows the mortgage loan officer and the customer to see exactly where everything is in the process and take away the uncertainty and create transparency? That's where these opportunities exist, and you can do it with any part of your business. Even the smallest process can be transformed. Okay, great. That's a great answer. And I know that one thing Salesforce has made a big push toward that we've heard a lot about is becoming a customer-centric company. So I imagine that the answer would fall kind of along the same lines of, of what you just said. But for those that may not have heard or read about that push, what do you at Salesforce mean when you talk about being a customer-centric company? Well, that, that's a great question. Uh, you know, a few years ago, the, the messaging was 
become a social enterprise. And that, you know, that was hard for a lot of people to understand. Again, social was a few years earlier at that point, so it wasn't quite as pervasive as now. And also because people didn't quite understand the term social enterprise and people in the social entrepreneurship space felt like it was impinging on their area. Uh, so we, we kind of pivoted into customer company, which is really how do you treat everything as a customer? It's not just a consumer, and it's a really important distinction. Your customer can be your employee. It can be your partner. It can be people in your supply chain. It can be your end customer. It can even be your product. So it could be a GE aircraft engine that is sending information autonomously to engineers back at headquarters and also to the customer, their customer, the airline, to give them real-time performance data on the engine. It could be your Philips toothbrush actually measuring how well you hold the toothbrush and how you use it with little accelerometers built into the handle, and that data being sent directly to your dentist. So when you show up and the dentist says, I can see you're not brushing really well over here. Let me tell you about some things you might do. That's the customer company we're talking about. How do you connect all of the sources of information with the people who need to consume that information wherever they are and streamlining and breaking down the, the walls and the friction of information between them that exists right now. So does that Phillips toothbrush exist right now? It does. They actually showed it at Dreamforce last year. Oh, nice. Very cool. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, these things are, again, we're still in early adopter phase for a lot of it, but if you just kind of break the orthodoxies of how we look at things today and how things get done, the opportunity for innovation in every industry and in every function is massive. You can't run out of ways to rethink how things can get done. And that's, I think, the next kind of battlefield of innovation for companies or battlefield for competition for companies out there is those that are most in tune with what their customers want, whether they're internal employees, you know, someone like Walmart that has to hire 2 million more associates in the next decade simply to meet their growth needs. And that's massive. How do you do that and create a model that creates engaged employees and drives down the traditional metrics they have around attrition and training costs and the rest and makes them feel like they're, they're working back to Sam Walton's you know, original um, way of describing it for purpose and not for task, right? This is, this, this, this is a huge area for chief innovation officers and companies across the board and CEOs and heads of talent and everybody to be thinking about how do I change everything? So on the on the topic of connected toothbrushes and connected devices, you know, the Internet of Things tends to be a, a huge tech buzzword. If you could add additional technologies or coming trends to the nexus of forces, what might be some of the things that you would add? Uh, well, uh, I think one of the most um, interesting ones, but not very well understood, is 3D printing. Um, 3D printing has a great opportunity as the makers of the technology continue to mature it. And I saw some amazing technology at the CES this year. And it's being used in amazing ways by corporations, not just for prototyping, but actually for making finished products. Um, what's interesting is that you can use it. Like, again, I, I go back to aircraft engines, um, I think a couple of times in my example. So I apologize for, for kind of doing the same industry over and over. But what's really interesting is that uh, the aircraft engine manufacturers have now discovered there are parts they can make for their engines with the 3D printing that they simply could not make with traditional manufacturing. So they can create whole new designs that allow them to create more efficient, better tolerance parts uh, that, that simply you couldn't make otherwise. So it's going to open new areas for engineering. But what's more interesting to me is the ability for it to actually move the point of production 
closer and closer to the end user for a whole range of products. It won't work in mass scale. You're not going to 3D print plastic forks for, for picnics. It just doesn't work nearly as effectively as traditional technologies. One other thing that I, I think is interesting, I've talked with a few people about, and obviously you know, there's a lot of pieces that still need to be put in place on this one, but if you think about the impact of 3D printing on carbon and uh, carbon footprint, if you can move things closer to the point of consumption, there's actually a huge opportunity for someone to create a platform that is actually the information around the source, the traditional source of where something was manufactured, the new source of where you're manufacturing it, the delta in terms of um, carbon footprint avoided by not transporting those goods from point A to point B, but making them at point B. Obviously, you have to net out the cost of moving the supply of the 3D printing to that location. But it seems to me that there's an arbitrage opportunity there once you can actually trade carbon credits for someone to create a platform that sells the value of that 3D printing shift in manufacturing from point A to point B. Nice, very cool. Yeah, we've, we've uh, or I know I've certainly read uh, about some of the amazing things you can do with 3D printing. We had a previous guest on who talked about the possibilities of 3D printing pizzas in the future uh, for, for maybe more mind-blowing things. You mentioned at the beginning the possibility of 3D printing organs, or maybe not even a possibility. I think it may be a reality. They're already um, doing it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that that's it's a it's a different world than where we come from. Yeah, and that, and that goes to the heart of you know if if people are thinking about how to identify that great opportunity for me to innovate, I would start by saying recognize the orthodoxies or the blinders you have about your own business or industry or customer or vice versa that drives you to to, to approach business a certain way, and when you can take off the blinders, when you can say for instance like. You know, take something as mundane as, as lettuce. Lettuce is a commodity. People have always looked at it that way. But it took a company like Fresh Express to come along and create what is basically a $7 billion industry that all they do is wash and bag your lettuce for you, but they make it convenient. And they figured out that convenience is what matters. So you can break orthodoxies on any aspect of a business and create huge opportunities for new, new value capture. That's what I think people should think about first. And then assume technology can do almost anything you want because it can. Yeah, definitely. So uh, Salesforce is really an amazing success story and a living, breathing example of the kind of value that can be created in a short period of time through the innovative application of technology. So Mark Benioff founded the company in 1999, and fast forward 15 years, last I checked, Salesforce had a market cap of close to $35 billion and has been named the world's most innovative company for the last three years by Forbes. So is that something that uh, that makes your job easy because you're in a culture where innovation is a given, or is it more difficult because once you reach the mountaintop, there's nowhere to go but sideways or down? No, I think it, it's our challenge right now is not coming up with things to innovate around, I mean, to be honest, because again, the role that I have is helping our customers to innovate their businesses. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, everything's up for invention right now or reinvention and, and innovation. So my challenge is quite frankly, bandwidth, the, the group that we, we, started building about two years ago or so that was originally, you know, started by Simon Mulcahy, who came over when Mark brought him from the World Economic Forum. You know, we were just a, couple, a handful of people, and now we're over 40 people, and we simply cannot scale fast enough because every company uh, is, you know, that we, we run into and start talking about this opportunity for innovation is looking for help. And we're still at the just the earliest stage of early transformation of companies and industries right now. So, there's not a lack of things to go do. Mm -hmm. Innovation is not the challenge. Sure. It's, it's bandwidth and prioritization. 
Yeah, and and who are can can you share the types of companies that you're working with? Yeah, so we're working with companies across the board in every industry. You know, we've done work with companies everything from uh, Directv to Walmart to Bank of America to Unilever to Toyota, Nike, Twitter. You know, even the most like cutting edge technology companies are still doing things in a 20th century way in many cases. And and there's great opportunity to help everybody rethink processes and business models and employee engagement and consumer engagement, consulting firms. We're even training consulting firms on how to do this sort of thing and how to look through these lenses at their customers' businesses in a whole new way because it opens up great opportunities for them to do more consulting work, both from a traditional management consulting side, but also from a, a IT implementation because it's not enough to imagine it. You know, a key part of innovation is execution, which means you have to actually go and do these things and make these changes. Mm-hmm. Sure. So question for you uh, about Salesforce again. On the page on the Salesforce website where you tout the three consecutive most innovative company awards, I thought it was interesting that, that Salesforce very openly trumpets the fact that $1 billion was spent in 2012 to fuel innovation through the acquisition of Radiant 6 and Buddy Media. Uh, and there's a quote from Salesforce founder and CEO Mark Benioff. It's, I'm willing to acquire a company that might not have a lot of revenue, but has a lot of innovation. So for companies that may be in a similar position of looking to add to their innovation capacity via acquisition, what are some of the metrics they might look for to qualify companies that, quote unquote, have a lot of innovation? So I would say it's actually, it's, there's a step before that that's really important. Because, you know, I remember even back in the 90s, uh, I think it was J.P. Morgan at the time, had done a study on, uh, the success of, of M&A. And what they found was, you know, no surprise, most M&A is not successful because companies would merge and acquire for the wrong reasons, right? They would buy a company, they would add it to the portfolio, build a conglomerate, but then eventually it'd spin it out a few years later. What's different about how we do it and why, and this is what I think companies in general should be thinking about is you need to start with what's the opportunity you're trying to innovate around, right? What's the market opportunity out there? And once you've figured out what the market opportunity is, you say, look, there's this massive transformation going on in social listening, for instance. Then the question becomes, can I build something quickly enough to enter that market space? Or is there somebody already there who's done the hard work of figuring out how to make this work? And can I simply scale them faster because they fit well into our engine, a la, you know, we required Radiant 6 to get that social listening capability. You know, companies that do strategic acquisition for a capability – are approaching it the right way, not just, hey, they're doing something cool, we should, we should do that, and then buy it, because that's, not, that's missing the point. Mm-hmm. And you know, whether it was, it was you know, Grading 6 or Buddy Media, or more recently, our biggest acquisition, which was Exact Target, which is now the Exact Target Marketing Cloud, it was around saying, what are going to be the key components of, of competition and engagement with consumers and customers in the marketing space, and then scanning the landscape, found there was an obvious leader in this space that, that just fit naturally into what we do, and then, therefore we acquire it, right? I think that the companies that are looking at acquisitions should start by saying, what are we actually trying to achieve, and then look at acquisition, not the other way around. Sure. Okay, got it. So at, uh, at nearby Georgetown University, you're out uh, on the West Coast, but you, you teach a course on the principles of innovation management in the executive MBA program here. So that includes touching on the key enablers of innovation. Uh, what are some of the key enablers of innovation? Uh, yeah, so, so um, I, yeah, I get to do a lot of flying. I love going back to D.C. and, and <laughs> Georgetown has a special place in my heart. Um, 
the uh, the course is actually designed around a lot of the insights that that were you know first I first really kind of crystallized in the building of the innovation program at Accenture. So you know we looked at a lot of companies, both the the Silicon Valley leaders, you know the Facebooks and the Amazons, et cetera, of the world, but also at a lot of traditional companies that had managed to continue to thrive and grow and deliver innovation to find the principles behind what made them successful and set them apart from everybody else. And, you know, what we uncovered, and that became core to how we designed our own. And based on that, essentially created a course around it. Those principles is really a handful. Um, You know, there's, there's, uh, you you need to have a process. And any company that says they don't have an innovation process, what that means is they haven't created a formal documented process because if innovation exists at a company, then there's a process, whether it's informal and people kind of fighting the system to make something happen or formal. There's a process. You need to clarify what the process is. You need to create governance for it, something that actually runs it and manages it. And what's important here is you need to create a governance that is flexible and adapts to the needs of the program and not rigid. What I mean by that is, you know, traditional programs that we saw when we were looking at companies that didn't do it terribly well would create like a monthly stage gate review or a quarterly stage gate review. And the implication there, going back to the you know, process improvement message from earlier, is that if somebody was ready on day three of that quarter, they still had to wait two and a half months to get their innovative idea or project in front of the committee for the next review. And that's all time lost, time to market, right? So we said, no, let's adapt it and make it when you're ready, we'll be ready to manage it and, and to evaluate it. Mm-hmm. The third part is, um, accountability. You had to hold people accountable for the stuff they were working on. And that tied to the fourth part, which is incentives, which you had to align the incentives of innovation to people's performance. Otherwise, they wouldn't, they simply wouldn't engage in it. A simple example is this. In a professional services world, the primary metric of uh, measurement is chargeability. How much time are you spending in front of the client that's billable? When you're looking for innovation, chargeability basically kills innovation because time you spend working on new ideas or new offerings or whatever is time you're not spending in front of the client that's billable. And so you get your hand slapped for it. And if you penalize people for innovating, they'll stop innovating. Similarly, in more traditional companies, a CEO can come out and say, I want us to be an innovative company. And it sounds great, but if they don't put it in the metrics of their top lieutenants, of his or her top lieutenants, if they're not measured on delivery on innovation, those top lieutenants aren't going to do it you know, a darn thing about it, right? Because that's not what they're incented to do. They People work toward what they're incented to do. And so you have to make incentives a key part of it. And then that gets to the probably the, the biggest area of all, which is leadership. An innovation program only works if leadership is actually actively behind it, engaged in it, and has set a clear direction to say, this is the hill we are going to take. This is the ocean we want to sail. And then puts the resources out there so that the people can innovate. And those are, I mean, those are the key principles. But, but first and foremost, without leadership, the rest of it doesn't matter. You can create a program, but if leadership isn't behind it, it'll, it'll be you know, window dressing. It won't actually do anything. Sure. And that, that echoes uh, statements we've heard from many previous guests. Uh, I think Greg Fraley and Bob Eckert were two that we had on early on that said, basically, if, if you're CEO or your, you know, the president of your company is not behind innovation efforts, they will fail. Absolutely. But you also need to, especially in this world, going back to the issue of social and the rest, you need to create a system that allows the organization to then 
actively innovate and connect to the dots with each other. Innovation, you know, I think a lot of people, when I meet them who are chief innovation officers, mistakenly think that they were appointed to basically be Steve Jobs uh, in their company, and they're not. The job of the chief innovation officer, from what I've seen across the board, is to be the enabler and um, kind of uh, manager, for lack of a better term, of innovation in the organization to make it flourish, right? Your job is to make sure innovation doesn't run into any roadblocks. You're not supposed to go sit in a room and come up with the next big idea. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess find a way to uh, keep score and report on the score as well so everybody knows where they stand, huh? Right, and, and, and recognize that, you know, um, scoring takes place over time. And early on, projects, when, they're, when you're building uh, innovative concepts early on, you just don't know enough to know whether or not it's going to be successful. Uh, so you have to be willing to take the long view you know, make the long bet and and see it through and have the patience of innovation because, you know, people, it's easy to look back and say, oh, look at those great ideas. But what they don't realize is that, they, you know, innovations take a while to flourish to get over from the early adopter to the mass market. And you have to have the patience to allow things to go a bit. They don't need a lot of capital or a lot of investment, but they need some time to kind of, you know, bake and then have the willingness and the skill to kill kill those things that are that are going to be resource drains that are not panning out and that's just as hard patience and also a willingness to kill are two sides of the same kind of skill base that that a chief innovation officer and a, an organization needs to thrive with innovation okay great so we're we're running a little low on time here shubber i believe any uh, any famous last words for uh, listeners out there that may be thinking about the intersection of technology and innovation and how they can apply possible technological changes or not even possible, but definite technological changes to their roles in their everyday work lives? Uh, I would say that, that you know, the, the, the simplest way to find opportunities for innovation is simply open your eyes, look around you, and see things that seem frustrating or absurd or um, if you've ever thought there should be a better way of doing this. You won't get to great innovative ideas by continuously improving an existing idea. You don't get to light bulbs from candles. You don't get to Uber from taxis. You have to step back far enough, look through the eyes of the customer, whether they're internal or external, to really see what the pain points are that they have. And then once you have those prioritized, then you can look at you know, all the great opportunities for innovation that will pop out in front of you, ways of making things better. Figure out how to connect those dots into a solution, and you're, and you're on to something. Okay, great, great advice. One, one final question for you, Shubber. I like to do a lot of field research on the people that come on the Innovation Engine podcast, and you, you're not excused from that. So I know that you're into space a little bit. We talked a little bit before the show about your, uh, about your past experience in the aerospace industry. I saw a news blurb that came out this week that said we're behind on Obama's uh, goal to put a person, uh, to put a human being on Mars by the year 2030. So we won't hold you to it, but do you think we will put somebody on Mars by 2030? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's funny because you'd heard the same pronouncements in 1988 about putting a man on Mars by 2010, and we passed that point. Um, it's easy for presidents and uh, politicians in general to make pronouncements about things that we will do that are three or four terms after they will be out of office because there's no metric, there's no measurement, there's no holding anybody accountable it allows, you know, a rousing speech and some, some funds to be directed towards certain, you know, congressional districts, but nothing really changes. 
we won't get there because we have no reason to go there. We we only went to the moon because we were, you know, racing the Soviets. As soon as we proved we could beat them there, and our technology was therefore better than theirs, we lost interest. So while there's a diehard group of people out there who really thinks we should go, um, no one's actually made the case for why. Okay, fair enough. You heard it here first. We will not put a man on Mars by 2030. Shabar Ali, Vice President of Strategic Innovation at Salesforce, thanks so much for joining us this week. Uh, really appreciate all the insights and appreciate your time today. Thanks, Will. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks so much to Shabar Ali for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're very excited to have Blair Miller innovation pioneer on the podcast to talk with us about innovation and filling your product pipeline. The best ways to source and manage ideas for new products, what you need to know and measure when launching new products to the marketplace, and how to know when it's time to put existing products out to pasture. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.